this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work again. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of, you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Okay, so what are the numbers on your company's dashboard? My guess is you look at your company's revenue and profitability, which are two great metrics to track, but there are another eight key drivers of the value of your company that go well beyond just revenue and profitability that are the things that acquirers want to know about. Going and getting your value builder score will help you look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. Takes about 15 minutes to do. Go to valuebuilder.com to get your score. I'm always crapping on private equity groups, telling you that they're the worst people to sell your company to. But that's not true. Of course, there are great private equity groups out there. And today's episode is one of those acquisition stories. Glenn Grant sold G2 Technology Group to Great Hill Partners and had a great experience selling to a private equity group. One of the things that I love about this story is Glenn does a great job of distinguishing between a private equity group that's acting like a traditional PE firm where they're simply, you know, essentially buying some EBITDA and trying to squeeze out some some more profit before flipping your company. And what is increasingly becoming a strategic private equity group where there's a strategic sort of roll up in place or a way that they're acting more, almost more like a strategic acquirer as opposed to a financial buyer. And, and Great Hill in this acquisition of G2 really defines that. So have a listen. And, and, and in your own mind, uh, Glenn will help you just, just distinguish between the two because I think a strategic private equity group could be a tremendous acquisition uh, acquirer for your company. Glenn does some interesting things around transparency. And in particular, he chose to be really transparent with his employees about selling his company. Uh, that's another thing that he did a little differently than we traditionally recommend, but have a listen to the way he did it and incentivized each of his employees to make sure they had a little skin in the game leading up to an exit. Um, he also talks about stock appreciation rights and the difference between stock options. And that might also be helpful for you if you're thinking about including your employees in the sale of your company. Here to tell you all of the rest of the details is Glenn Grant. Glenn Grant, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you. Happy to be here. Big fan. Tell us where you are right now. I am uh, sitting in New Hampshire uh, at my new lake house, uh, enjoying the view. And and before we hit record, you shared with me uh, the lake house is a what? It's a trophy of mine, and uh, I think it's pretty pretty interesting given the show. It's uh, you know full circle straight out of the book. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm a huge believer in having a trophy, by the way, of when you sell your company, there's got to be some way to market. So good for you. And every time you go to New Hampshire, you can remember the success you had with G2. Tell me about this business. What, 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 how did it start in the beginning for the first three years, you guys did IT services. Describe that if you would. That's correct. Yeah. So um, I was uh, part of a different company that, uh, you know, came to uh, an exit uh, and I stuck around with the acquirer for a couple of years. And then I decided uh, I wanted to go on venture out on my own, uh, really focused on, on company culture and the composition of clients. So I decided to go out on my own and, uh, and start a business that I knew how, which was 
managed IT services. It wasn't because that's what I set out to do some groundbreaking thing. Uh, it's the trade I knew and I, I decided, Hey, I could do it myself. So, so IT uh, services, uh, is like you're the IT guy for small businesses when they need antivirus software, they call you and networking computers together, that kind of stuff. Exactly. When I started off, it's, you know, help desk, server support, monitoring, those types of things for a small, medium business between probably 20 and maybe 150 users. Got it. You made a big pivot away from that. Maybe describe where you took the business from there. Yeah. So, um, you know, started the business, uh, continued to operate it. Uh, you know, I ended up joining uh, the Entrepreneurs Organization uh, Accelerator Program, where I started to learn about what I was actually trying to pull off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, started to focus in on what I was doing. You know, the first business book I ever read was uh, Built to Sell. Oh, boy. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, first it started with, uh, you know, trying not to be everything to everyone and focusing on what we were doing. And then uh, a little bit along the way, um, you know, I actually read another book, Blue Ocean Strategy, and that right. got my mind going on, you know, I'm in IT services. There's tens of thousands of IT companies just like me what are we doing that's different and what can we do that's even more different than that? Um, to sort of get away from the pack and, you know, uh, with our sales team, you know, cold calling, you know, our target customers gets 25 calls from it services a month. Right. Mm. Uh, so how to get into a different space. And, you know, uh, at the time, um, in the industry, the cloud was, uh, you know, starting to become the biggest buzzword around and, and then actually developed into something beyond the buzzword. And I started working a lot with uh, Amazon Web Services uh, on for my own use, uh, backend and uh, in the business. And then that platform developed to a point where I was comfortable introducing it to customer environments. And as time went on, we started to see that we were, you know, servicing a different segment of customers that was a little bit more high tech. Um, because of our location in the Innovation District in Boston, uh, so we sort of tuned in on that. Uh, I really started doing sort of Linux managed services on the cloud. And then the, the that's next when you, thing. That's, that's when you lose me, by the way, all the oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. services. Not important. Basically, <laughs> so you're basically taking somebody's website and, and ensuring it, it's being hosted on Amazon Web Services, AWS platform. Am I getting that roughly right? Exactly. And, okay. and, and we started to work with more and more software as a service companies just because of the way that the industry was going uh, and who was around the neighborhood. Got it. Okay. And, and that's where you started to, to really differentiate it. Where did you take it from there? Um, so uh, really what we did is we took it to what we invented, if you will, we call it managed DevOps. And that was really looking at our customers and, and, and how they viewed us. And in the IT, managed IT business, we were essentially viewed as a, as a cost center by the CFO, typically. You know, uh, we help somebody uh, fix their printer off hours, they get a bill. Yeah, that's important to them, but uh, the bill, they want to question. Uh, we started to pivot towards taking care of the customer's revenue stream. Uh, so the SaaS platform. So now you fix their SaaS platform in the middle of the night on Saturday. Uh, they're giving you high fives. They don't care about the bill because they didn't have a blip in their revenue and they don't have customers calling them uh, being upset because they were down. So we so intentionally smart. tried to shift to that and away from being viewed as that cost center 
Uh, and within the customers, we also switched our, our target audience, which, you know, we basically serve the back office staff. And in our, our customers prior to that, the software developers making the SaaS platform didn't really want anything to do with us. You know, we weren't helpful to them. They could fix their own printers. Uh, and we were probably just a nuisance. So that's when we started a pivot to manage DevOps. And in a nutshell, that is getting into supporting the tool sets and the platforms that the developers actually use to make their product. And the software developers came our, you know, our core target market for delivering service within these businesses. Got it. And so how did you charge for those services? What was your, is it? So prior to, in managed IT, we were charging per user. Uh, In, you know, managed DevOps, it was, you know, a lot of iterations, uh, (laughs) to be honest with you. Uh, But we we basically charged a flat monthly fee. Uh, And we wanted to get into that sort of realm of space where we were going to be able to deliver, you know, a certain amount of proactive service to help them build things, but then also, you know, sort of function as an insurance policy uh, for when things go bump in the night. Hmm. Interesting. What did you learn about pricing as a result of your experiments? Um, you know, early on, we had some accounts that were way underpriced. Um, we had some accounts that were, you know, probably overpriced. Um, you know, at that time it was, you know, new and there wasn't you know, nobody out there doing it. Um, so we, you know, we just charged what we charged and, you know, uh, our customers were, you know, around for quite a long time. So as time went on, uh, we actually reduced the price for some customers as we gained leverage within, uh, you know, our own operation. Uh, and we renewed our service packages and had new pricing models. And, you know, we were a long-term customer. They're really happy to hear that we're actually going to charge them less this year, but we're going to deliver service in a different way. That's better for us. Hmm, got it. I love, you know, one of the nine subscription models is, is like the insurance policy idea where you're, you're kind of paying a fee so that when things break, they're, uh, you're there for them, essentially. Yeah, and in managed IT, that at that point in time, that's where the market was. It was almost all insurance policy, if you will. The more things we prevent from happening, the more profitable we are, and uh, the customers happy. Uh, as we started to get into the cloud and manage DevOps, you know, we really had to develop a way to bake into that package a way for new things to be built. Um, because that was the whole beauty of the cloud, right? We can build things and spin up servers with, you know, a couple clicks. Uh, and, we, you know, we didn't want to be a bottleneck in that process. We really wanted to help. So it was a sort of like kind of a reboot on the fixed monthly fee for uh, IT services. How big did you get the company before you decided to sell it? Um, we were around 30 people or so. Mm-hmm. And we used a number of outsourced um, providers for, you know, office type things, accounting, bookkeeping, HR. Um, so we kind of kept the, the footprint pretty small uh, as far as full-time. Employees. How did it feel to be managing 30 people, both directly and indirectly? Uh, you know, it was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a big culture guy uh, and also a uh, type of leader that will, you know, carry that weight on their shoulders, uh, myself, uh, get on the front lines with people. So I really had a lot of fun. Uh, but you know, you keep adding more people and people are, uh, you know, complicated. So, <laughs> uh, the more staff you add, the, the, the more, the more things that uh, you've got to manage and juggle. What was the trigger that made you want to sell? 
So that was really interesting. Um, you know, in my business plan, so um, I use EOS uh, traction uh, and we, you know, our quarterly meetings and annual strategy sessions. And we're always sort of looking out that one year, three year. And we made it a five year vision because we were in technology, a 10 year vision is kind of irrelevant. Right? Uh, and in our plan, you know, we were headed towards um, building our own platform, if you will. So I wanted to make a couple of acquisitions and prove to a buyer that, Hey, we have this platform. We've made a couple of add-ons and now we want to go to that next level and we need capital to do that. Um, so that was the plan we were tracking on. And really what happened was um, with the economy being as it was and all this money that needed to be put to work, uh, the private equity space figured out that this public cloud thing was good to go. Uh, and they started really knocking on everybody's door about two years sooner than you know I had planned. Um, actually probably about three or four years earlier. So let me just stop you there, Glenn. You had in your plan, you had the idea that you were going to raise some money in order to make some acquisitions. Uh, we were going to boot, we were going to bootstrap and make some acquisitions, but then show to a buyer that, you know, this model, if we were to be bought or raise more money that we could continue to buy, uh, to make more acquisitions and really scale up. Uh, so I was working on proof of concept of that model, if you will. And Glenn, what was driving you to grow? Uh, you, you know, 30 employees, you're a culture guy, you had a unique proposition. Why not kind of put your feet up and, and kind of ride it out for the next 10 or 15 years, take the dividends, profitability? What was, what was uh, driving you to continue to grow and scale? Uh, really it was the tech industry. Uh, you know, basically have to reinvent yourself. You know what I like to say every seven years, you know, some people will say you have to reinvent yourself every seven months these days. Um, but that's a lot of work. It's exhausting. It was exhausting to pivot from managed it for small business to what ended up being managed DevOps because you got to figure it all out again. Uh, you got to retool, you got to, uh, get different skill sets. Uh, and, and really, I just didn't want to go through that again. So I, we, we got on the front edge of the wave with what we were doing. And I really wanted to ride that as fast as we could um, to, to that, that peak before, uh, you know, whatever comes after the cloud comes and we have to start all over again. Yeah, that's one of the downsides of being in the technology space, right? Great multiples, fast, fast growth, lots of innovation. But man, the, 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 hunt, the, hunted, the hunter can become the hunted pretty quickly. Yeah. And, you know, in the M&A conversation too, that's kind of how I felt. I wasn't ready to sell, mm. but I could tell from the activity in the market, someone was going to buy somebody in my neighborhood. And then I'd have, you know, an 800 pound gorilla with plenty of uh, capital behind them right in my backyard. And at the time we still really had no competition. People would say, who's your biggest competitor? And I would say the internal, the internal hire full-time employee. Uh, whereas in, in managed IT, I could rattle off 25 people that I know that I'm friends with and EO that are just in Boston that are in the business. So, right, right, right. So I wanted so, to get moving with that before, uh, before it got even more difficult. Yeah. 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 So what was your, what was your next step? So, so your triggering events, uh, you're, you're starting to hear about private equity and, and them being interested in companies like yours. Yeah. I mean, I was fielding, you know, an unbelievable amount of inbound inquiries for years. Um, 
And, uh, you know, I would take a look at those and the quality of people reaching out started to get better and better and bigger and bigger. Um, you know, it wasn't just a, you know, there was a whole lot of, you know, brokers I'd never heard of, you know, trying to, uh, be able to work with me and help me sell. And then it really started to develop into, uh, you know, serious buyers that I was more interested in, in hitching my wagon to. What did they say in their outreach that, that made you realize they were serious buyers? Um, you know, it was, it was interesting, uh, being in business and trying to be my own, you know, sales manager, which is my Achilles heel, which was one of the other driving factors. I've tried so many times to be a great sales manager and that's the thing that I'm uh, the least good at. Mm -hmm. Um, so in, in that, regard, I would every now and then answer a cold call, uh, kind of just to, to have some fun and see what the person on the other end would say. And, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, when I was in a good mood and enjoy that call and see what's up. Um, so I started actually doing that with, uh, these, you know, M and A in, in inquiries. Uh, and, uh, you know, this one time I picked up the phone and, uh, it wasn't ended up, uh, anybody that I ended up uh, working with, but, you know, they started talking about other deals in the market. Um, and they were throwing out numbers that were more multiples of revenue as opposed to multiples of EBITDA. And I was like, oh, it's time to, to you know, ask my board of advisors about this and really take a serious look at what's going out there on out there. What kind of multiples of revenue were they throwing out in those conversations? Was it like two and three times revenue? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I've heard everything from, you know, one to, uh, half times revenue to five times revenue. If, you know, everything, you know, falls into place and, you know, five times is, you know, I had, I've never met anybody who actually got that <laughs> uh, personally. Uh, and I'm sure it had a lot of strings attached, you know, size and scale that was far beyond uh, my business as far as revenue and, and, and EBITDA as well. Um, because I was trying to scale and grow, I was reinvesting, most everything into the company on the fly. So I didn't really fall into that category because, um, you know, I put the profit back into the engine. How much of your net worth at this time, when you were starting to field these calls, how much of your net worth is tied in your company, uh, on a percentage basis? Uh, 98%. <laughs> wow. Like a huge yeah. proportion. Yeah. Yeah. I was definitely running the tables and, uh, you know, you gotta know when, when to fold them. Uh, so was that part of your calculus to that you were so heavily exposed to? Yeah, definitely. And it really goes right back into that, having to reinvent your business every seven years in it, you know, and also with the economy, the economy has been great. Uh, and you know, at the time I was thinking it had been too great for too long. Uh, yeah. and so that's the other trigger too. If the economy goes down, then I'm going to have to hold on to this business for another seven to 10 years, uh, and wait for it to come back up. If I'm looking for, you know, uh, a real successful exit. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think, you know, once bitten twice shy, the people that have gone through the, the whatever that was the, called the great recession, I have no interest in doing that again. <laughs> no, and that's when I started my business was uh, right at the beginning of that in January, 2009. <laughs> oh, is that right? So it was all uphill from there. I was just you only go up from there. Yeah. So where, so, okay. So you're, you're hearing these kind of multiple of revenue type conversations from, from, uh, from private equity groups. Where do you go from there? What, how did you sort of proactively start 
marketing your company for sale? So, um, so uh, you know, I took a, a different approach. Well, first I, I did an outreach, you know, asked some advisors, got some, some names of folk, talked to, um, you know, investment bankers and brokers. And, you know, uh, I had some advice from some other folks, uh, where you could do the deal yourself, uh, with a, with a, a lawyer who's well-versed in M and a, um, but then you need to do a lot of negotiating yourself, uh, and knowing, you know, myself pretty well, personally, I didn't want to be in that position. I definitely wanted an insulator there. Why? Um, just because I'm, uh, you know, I wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm a real emotional guy and I didn't want to get like sort of drawn into any sort of contentious negotiations. Um, so, uh, I had a, a, a small board of advisors that I've been working with and, uh, you know, a friend and colleague of mine, Matt Rudnick, he, uh, had experience in the private equity world. Uh, and so we started talking about that level and he was actually, uh, in between, uh, you know, uh, gigs at the time. So I actually made the decision to hire him on full time as a VP of corp death. Uh, and what we were doing there was, you know, also following the sage advice of continuing to run the business as if a deal isn't going to be done. Um, so uh, Matt was focused on both looking for, you know, small companies for us to acquire while at the same time starting to vet some of these potential buyers. So we're really running like a dual pronged approach where, uh, you know, it, it, it gave us the flexibility to go either way. And we didn't, you know, really put all of our eggs in one basket and then, you know, get near the end and have to, you know, got to go with it or you got to start all over again. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Matt's kind of on, on the payroll now, where does it go from there? Um, so from there we, um, you know, we had some inbound inquiries, um, that, you know, the conversation got started a little faster than I wanted to. Um, and, but you know, it was also very interesting. Uh, so we pumped the brakes a little bit there and, uh, we ran, uh, what we call a limited process. Mm -hmm. So instead of going on a full blown auction, um, you know, we already were talking to a few people. We knew they would be, you know, they're highly likely to be, uh, you know, final contestants, if you will. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Matt's advice there was, you know, if you go and run a full blown process right now, it might be a turnoff to them. Uh, plus it's going to take a, a lot more time. Um, so we ran a, a limited process you know, so that we had options. Um, if, if, you know, who went down the road with somebody and it, and it didn't work out and also just to do a quick market check and, you know, not sort of go by, you know, the, the one number somebody threw out there, uh, but really get a feel for, you know, what people, um, value the company as because it's, you know, it, it is a new business model, right? Managed DevOps, not a lot of people out there doing it. Also, um, with the Amazon partner network, we got in that very early. So we already had five plus years under our belt as being an Amazon partner. Uh, and in that space, the channel is very important. So we had built up a lot of clout with Amazon as a, you know, trusted partner, do good work. Uh, and that's something that was also very, uh, interesting to prospective buyers. Hmm. Interesting. So where does it go from there? Matt's got some offers. Did he actually get some letters of intent or? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the, the simplest cut, cut to it, you know, we, we talked to a number of people. Uh, we had, uh, you know, quite a few in our data room. Our goal was to get uh, a minimum of uh, three letters of intent and then, and then move forward. Why, how did you pick that as a goal? What was, what was uh, the magic about three? 
Uh, it's just one more than two. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to have only two people, so we wanted to get three. Gives you a pretty good idea. Uh, 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 we've got three, like, you know, solid, you know, LOIs. We could kind of trust that the, the the numbers and the terms that we were looking at were going to be, you know, what we would probably see across the market. Got it. And so, what did you see? In the, did you get your three LOIs? And and what what, what did you see? Yeah, yeah, we we did. Um, we saw you know some good stuff in there. Uh, you know, I really can't get into the details of what exactly we saw, um, but uh, you know, one of those we decided to to move forward with uh, in an exclusive fashion and start the wonderful process of diligence. <laughs> we'll get into that in a second. So the three LOIs were they all from private equity, or were there some strategic? You know, I think there was one strategic in there. Um, we did talk to a couple of strategics. You know, I, I always thought that I would sell my company to a strategic. If you had asked me, you know, years ago, even probably, you know, four years ago, I would say, I, you'll never see me sell to private equity because of, uh, you know, some stories I've heard in, in the entrepreneur circle just didn't seem right for me. You know, I you know, heard things about you know, long, grueling earnouts and this and that and the other thing. Um, but, uh, that, you know, that's not what, what I saw, you know, that's not what was being offered to us. And, you know, I had really never dug into private equity and the differentiation between firms. Uh, and the, you know, the firms we were looking at were, were more on the sort of, uh, growth partner, uh, side of the scale, as opposed to really just trying to you know, build up your EBITDA and turn out some profit and continue to grow and then exit out. So, um, you know, I, I didn't know those existed, right? So they, they became unicorns to me and I was, I was pretty excited to see that there was an opportunity. So, in your, so let's, let me get into it. So in your mind, private equity groups were, were really just there to ratchet up the EBITDA using lots of debt and management principles and, and then, then they kind of flipped the company a few years later. That was your. Yeah, in my mind, it was the, the, the industry was really focused on, you know, the, the spreadsheets and the dollars and the business sense around that. Uh, and like I said, I was reinvesting all the profit back into the business. So I never thought that I would be attractive to anybody in that space. Got it. And then, so what did you, what did you come to learn as you evaluated these letters of intent from private equity companies? How, how did your uh, kind of perception of them change? Um, so I, I, basically I learned that there was a few out there that had the same plan I did, you know, they wanted to, to build a platform, but not to, uh, really just bolt on, uh, additional companies that were very similar and increase that, um, total revenue and EBITDA, but really truly scale up, uh, you know, a, a platform that was unique in the market and really get into a new space and technology. Uh, you know, almost behaving more like a, a venture capital. Um, now I'm a, I'm a, a, a dot-com kid product of the dot-com uh, bubble burst. So, uh, you know, VC totally out of the question for me, according to uh, some of the dot-coms I worked for, I'm a billionaire on paper. Right? <laughs> uh, so I, I wasn't, I wasn't about to do that, but they, they funded the growth in that manner, but you know, they were out there, private equity was out there looking for, functioning businesses that were being run correctly uh, that were already proven and, and working. Whereas, you know, a lot of times you see in, in venture capital, it's a very early stage idea and they really want to help you 
figure it out and change it and make it their own thing. What was it about as you read through the letters of intent? Um, and I, and I, know, I know we can't get into the, the specifics around numbers. What was um, what was the, the the clue, or what? Was, how did you know the their their intention was to build out a platform as opposed to just squeeze out more EBITDA? Um, it really wasn't from the LOIs themselves. We I went out and you know met with. Uh, with, with, a, with a bunch of the groups, you know, had dinners, talked about it, learned about their firm, their philosophy. Uh, some of them had already, um, you know, owned companies in the space and they were looking for more of a, an add-on. Um, I also, you know, through rapidly learning about the, the process, uh, you know, it'd be better to be the first companies that that's bought or one of the first. Um, for a variety of reasons, not only, you know, uh, financially, but the, that, that what you build and what your company does and that culture is going to become, you know, a cornerstone of the bigger entity. It sort of cut you off, Glenn. How were you, um, how was your role being characterized in those letters of intent? Was there this earnout component where you were being asked to stay on? How did you stick handle the, the period after? Yeah, so um, it the, wasn't so much about earnouts, which is which which was surprising to me. Um, it was about staying on, but being part of that next chapter. Really, it was more about uh, the second bite of the apple, which right. I also never thought I would be interested in, uh, and the opportunity to to roll some of the proceeds of the sale forward uh, as the incentive to stay on and help the company grow and be a subject matter expert. Uh, and be a part of that next thing um, for the second bite. Uh, and that was, you know, that was exciting for me. I'm an entrepreneur uh, that was doing, uh, you know, entrepreneurial things at a scale that, uh, you know, I didn't think I would do. So um, just for folks following along, the second bite of the apple is this, this overused expression among private equity groups that, that basically means that, that you, uh, you sell part of your business and then carry or, or some of your equity goes into the new entity uh, as a form of equity into the, into this, you know, roll up or, you know, growing company. Uh, so that's what you're referring to here is, is uh, so you were selling, uh, I'm assuming the majority, was it a majority recapitalization, meaning the majority of, of the company and then rolling some into. Uh, they were all, you know, from a structure point of view, they were all structured as uh, selling, uh, you know, hundred percent of the company, but then reinvesting proceeds in. I see. I see. Yeah. And so, and again, if we get into areas you can't talk about, I totally understand. Yep. Um, but I think people would want to know sort of what portion of your proceeds would they be looking for you to roll in? And, and interestingly, is that flexible? Is that something, is that a point of negotiation or is it sort of, it's this or it's nothing? Um, so I, yeah, I can't get into the specifics there. It, it definitely is flexible. And, um, you know, what I, what I will say is, you know, uh, I invested enough for it to be interesting okay. <laughs> while at the same time taking, uh, you know, a, a, a good portion off the table and, uh, and getting that 98% of my net worth, uh, you know, sort of migrated the other directions. <laughs> yeah. Enough to buy a lake house in New Hampshire. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, Got it. So interesting. So a couple questions around that, because again, I think this, 
is really important for, for entrepreneurs. How, um, and, and again, we can sort of, uh, we can sort of park your transaction for a minute and now just, let's just talk generally about working with private equity companies, regardless of which one and, and so forth. How do you, or maybe we ask it this way, if a fellow EO member said, Glenn, I'm thinking of doing a, a private equity deal, um, how do I ensure that the equity that I roll into the new deal, um, how do I ensure I don't get diluted or that I ensure that I have some sort of decision-making and I'm not just along for the ride and, and some sort of uh, absentee owner? What advice would you give to that guy or gal who's, who's thinking about doing a, a PE deal? Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's hard to, you know, be in control of any, you know, uh, dilution, right? It, it is what it is. Uh, I would say if you can be in a role in the company where you think you can make an impact, that's the best way to, to uh, skirt that. If they grow really well and don't need to raise a bunch of capital, then, then, then you won't get diluted uh, as much. Um, but, uh, you know, that was the, the, you know, the other part of the question, uh, you know, essentially is losing control, right? How can you be sure that you want to be part of, you know, tie up some, some, some more, uh, money in something that you don't ultimately have control over, you know, that's something that I was completely not comfortable with. Uh, and that's why like, you know, I'd always said the earn out things were, were scary. And I would tell people, you know, make sure, but, uh, my advice would be to, to really look at the private equity firm and their their track record and what they have accomplished uh, because they are a business and that is their business model. And then if they have a great record of success, uh, you should look into that and see if that's something that, you know, it makes you feel more comfortable. How did you evaluate the track record of the companies that were making an offer. What, what are you, are you going on their website, talking to other entrepreneurs who sold to them? Like what, what was your evaluation look like? Um, so going onto their websites for sure. Um, but then talking to other folks in the industry, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, Matt did a great job. Uh, he was familiar with a lot of firms. Uh, and if he wasn't familiar with them, he would call their associates in his network, uh, to learn more. Uh, and then there's always the, the option to ask to speak to um, someone else in their portfolio who's had an exit and, you know, hear it right from, uh, you know, a fellow entrepreneur who's made a decision to work with that firm. So you got three offers. Is that right? Three LOIs. Mm -hmm. What's the percentage difference? And I know we can't talk about the numbers, but I'd, I'd be curious to know uh, range how big a gap was there between the low end and the high end among those three? Are we talking sort of big, like 10% or 50%? Like how big a gap or was it pretty close? Uh, you know, things were pretty close. Um, yeah. And that was encouraging that, you know, that we were, you know, getting the data points we needed from a limited process and not, you know, missing the boat by not running a, a big and presumably that gave you confidence that you were getting uh, like pretty close to what the company was worth. If you got mm -hmm. three offers and they were, I guess when you get three offers and they're wildly different, you're like, maybe if we get 10 offers, we'll get even more variants. But when you get three, you're, you're starting to get a sense that maybe there's some, you know, you're yeah. trying to around the answer. You know, I, uh, you know, I pick up a lot of, uh, you know, 
one-liners and cliches in the EO circle. Uh, but you know, here's one that stuck with me, which is your company is only worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. Yep. You know, so, um, I looked at it that way, you know, on paper, I, I, I've had other, uh, colleagues and friends and associates that, uh, you know, have gotten offers and are just absolutely convinced that their company is worth far more than what those offers were. Uh, and it might be, but if you can't find somebody to give you that money, then it's not actually worth anything. <laughs> it's not actually an offer. Got it. So uh, you agree to, to to go through with, or you accept one of the three LOIs. Yep. What was it? Uh, what, what was it about that LOI that made you choose them? Uh, it was, it was really about the firm. You know, um, you know, I ended up uh, working with Great Hill Partners. They coincidentally uh, were in Boston. Um, I just really liked, uh, the, the folks that I interacted with there, uh, you know, the partners there, um, looking at their portfolio, I saw that they were very successful in, in tech companies. Uh, and I was a tech company. Uh, so really, you know, if, if anything, I, I fell in love with the, with the firm and the, the idea of being able to, to work with them, uh, you know, at a level that was much higher than, uh, the bootstrapped, uh, little business that I put together. So what was life like? At, did you, so you agreed to stay on in what capacity as an advisor, as the CEO of your company? Like what was your role? Um, so, uh, I'm the president of us east i'm still currently uh with uh the company is now called uh, mission cloud services um and the the uh great hill purchased three companies uh out of roughly the same time and the other two firms were also uh amazon advanced consulting partners similar businesses they were both uh in the los angeles area uh so also scaling nationally you know we had a, a geography uh value uh in 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 the whole game uh, so, um, you know, a lot of my role was really being that, that executive here in the Boston beachhead, uh, cause HQ is, was out in, is out in Los Angeles. What's been the most difficult part of the transition for you from bootstrap entrepreneur who can make all his own decisions to now, uh, being a divisional president within a, a larger company? Yeah. I mean, really the biggest challenge for me was slowing down, uh, allowing myself to slow down and to not, you know, essentially carry the whole weight of the world on my shoulders and, and, uh, you know, understand there's other people around to help. Now. Uh, mm -hmm. so for me, it was not so much of a, an issue of like control and being able to make my own decisions. It was actually trying to, you know, turn the engine down from a uh, 150% uh, to even a hundred, you know, uh, and sort of uh, reacclimate into the world of uh, being an employee and not an owner where, you know, you take everything home with you every night. I, you know, I was on 24, seven, 365, not from a workload thing, but from a responsibility, you know, there's uh, you know, these, my employees became my friends, uh, their families, became my family. This is very important to me. Uh, and a lot of people relied on me, uh, for, you know, uh, for income, uh, and stability. And, and, and I took that very seriously. So I was always on, always thinking, uh, and it's, it's been great to, um, once I finally was able to, to, to wind down a little bit, know that somebody else is there to do it, that there's a bigger team that I could actually really go on vacation 
and unplug. And, you know, I took a couple of vacations where I told everybody, Hey, um, you know, I'm not going to check email. Don't bother me. But in case of emergency, you know, call these three fellow EOers of mine. If, if, if you really need some advice, you know, uh, but you know, now I can do that and, and not even have to think that way, not worry about it. Know that I have a, a bigger team of, uh, of experienced leaders that, you know, can run stuff. Good for you. It's, it's amazing. I'm glad you brought up your employees because, um, we talked offline before we, we hit record here that you chose to be totally transparent with your team. Maybe talk through that decision and, and how, and what you mean by transparent with your employees as it relates to selling. Yeah. So, um, you know, really it was something I learned from, uh, my, my previous job, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm now a colleague and a really good friend of mine, uh, uh, who's also a DO, his name's Calvin Wilder, but, uh, the company that worked at pro- pre- previously, you know, um, the thing that I took away from that whole experience, uh, that was, was really interesting was from day one, even in the job interview, they were talking about selling the company one day. Uh, and then when the company was sold, I remember somebody, one of the other staff coming up to me and being like, Hey, you know, we're selling the company, you know, what do you think? You know, you generally, you know, might be against something like this. And I was like, Hey, they were up front above the board a hundred percent of the time. So it should come no surprise to you that they're selling the company. And, you know, regardless if you like the situation or not, it's not on them. They told you from day one. So I really took that approach as well. Uh, and the, you know, so I wasn't a hundred percent transparent on the, the whole process, but I was, uh, you know, transparent with folks, even in the interview process, Hey, we are growing the company to sell it one day. Uh, and we have these incentive plans, um, to make it worthwhile for you too. Uh, and really get everybody else sort of bought into some, element of the entrepreneurial ride. Uh, we wanted to hire, uh, you know, entrepreneurial, uh, candidates, uh, that, that got that, uh, some got it a lot more than others. Some people, um, that's all they wanted was some sort of stake in it. Uh, and other, you know, folks that are, you know, maybe earlier on in their career, you know, we had to do some explaining of like this, this is how it works. And if you want to so- go work for, uh, you know, fortune 50 company, uh, you know, maybe still get a pension. Uh, this is how the game is played these days. So what was your currency uh, to incentivize your team around the exit? So uh, we had a stock appreciation rights program. Okay. Describe that. What does that mean? So uh, as I described it to candidates, um, you know, we set aside a certain portion of um, the equity in the company for this program. uh, And we awarded them to uh, individuals uh, as they came on and also on an annual basis based on performance. And, uh, I went with uh, stock appreciation rates, um, because I had experienced that previously, but also going back to the dot-com era, it was, you know, stock options, right. Uh, where you have to, you know, they vest over time. You've actually got to pay for them. And, um, you know, I liked stock appreciation rights because we weren't asking the employees to actually pay for them. You, uh, you are awarded them at a certain stock price, depending on the valuation, let's say it was a dollar. And if the company sells and that stock was worth $3, then you get the $2 from the time that it grew. Uh, and I'm not asking you to put any of your money in. I'm not asking you to work here because I want to take a portion of your paycheck. Uh, but I do want you to have uh, a win to celebrate at, at the end. 
uh, and and also it functioned as a retention tool, you know, for um, you know the payout schedule was post sale, uh, so that you know they were also along for the ride with me, uh, you know, you know post sale. How did you value the company for the purposes of the stock appreciation rights? Um, so we did evaluation um, a couple of times. Yeah. Um, I really can't get into the specifics of that either, okay. but okay. Yeah. No problem. But, but uh, be curious to know, did you use an external firm? Was it kind of back of the napkin, a formula that you'd heard? Like what was the, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, it basically evolved over time. You know, it started with the back of the napkin, you know, Hey, yeah. they're worth nothing. So lucky you be <laughs> 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 worth something someday. Yeah, yeah. And, and then as time went on, we would, uh, I think essentially leveraged our you know, CPA firm. And, yeah. and as things got bigger and, you know, more serious, then we started to do more formal valuation. So it was kind of a gradual build there of, you know, it's a, it's a trade-off, right? You know, valuation process is expensive and at early stage, you don't really have the money for it. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, your stock's not really worth a tremendous amount. So it's kind of easy to do the napkin math. Yeah. 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 H- how did uh, you let me ask you a different way. What advice would you have to a fellow entrepreneur who is considering putting in a stock appreciation rights program? Uh, so those types of tools uh, and the whole, con- you know, the whole subject of, you know, do I tell my employees that, you know, we're trying to sell the company or we're going to sell the company or the company's about to be sold. I, personally, I think it really comes down to a company culture thing. You know, there, there isn't a right or wrong culture out there uh, is, is what I believe, but there are plenty of different cultures. And uh, for some of them, I think that type of program and transparency really just, you know, helps, helps fuel the engine. Uh, and in other companies, it might not be that important and it might actually cause more problems than, uh, than it's worth. Yeah, I've heard all sorts of stories, everything from, you know, galvanized everybody marching in the right direction on the good side, downside, uh, you know, creating all these sort of fiefdoms and, and, and back talk about, you know, what's the stock work and who we're selling to and, and people are focused too much on, on exit as opposed to serving customers and so forth. So kind of heard yeah. the gamut. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think that's really, you know, a, a, a factor of culture and probably industry as well, you know, I, yeah. I imagine if you were in the financial industry, then everybody would be very attuned to uh, what those numbers were and when that was going to happen. Um, but we were tech tech folks, you know, we, we were just computer geeks, you know, we're really excited to fix computers, help people out. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, we were there, you know, to, to help our customers, you know, achieve their goals and we we're very customer service focused and, uh, you know, that, that was the type of business we had. We were a services business. Uh, how big, you know, I think people would be curious to know how, how much money, um, the, the kind of rank and file employee got as a part of the exit. Now I know we can't answer that directly, but I'd be curious, is it like, was it like, uh, you know, 5% of an annual salary, 50, a hundred percent? Like, was it a meaningful amount of money or was it more, if you will, token it, it, amount of money that, that wouldn't, do you, know what I'm, do you know what I'm getting at? I'm trying to, yeah. people would be curious to know, like how much money do I have to put in the game here to have a material impact for my employees? 
Yeah. I mean, again, yeah, I can't really talk about that, but, uh, you know, I can talk about me. Uh, I wanted it to be meaningful and it was meaningful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. That's helpful for sure. Um, last question. You mentioned there were trophies purchased, yeah. uh, plural, <laughs> one of yeah. which we've already talked about, but I'd be curious about the other ones. What were the other trophies bought? Yeah. The, the, the other trophy, you know, was a toy that I've been looking at for a long time. It's called a one wheel. It's uh, like an electric skateboard. And okay. uh, Oh yeah. I've seen those. Oh yeah. So there's nothing that says, you know, cool. Like a 40 year old tech dude riding around on an electric <laughs> unicycle. Right. Um, but I was looking at it for forever and, uh, I seriously, uh, after the, you know, the closing in the middle of the day, which, you know, wasn't, you know, what you see in the movies, you know, uh, so dramatic, but I did finally go into that shopping cart and hit buy right away. <laughs> nice. that, that was my, my gift to myself. Uh, and then of course we mentioned that, uh, you know, uh, you know, my, my family and I, we bought a, bought a lake house, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's a great, great retreat. And, uh, you know, ironically, uh, totally unintentionally, but it's kind of out of your book, right? You know, now I'm the, the mentor and the coach sitting up here in my office at the lake house as opposed to the other way around. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I'm glad it's worked out so well for you. If you, um, where should people reach out? If people want to reach out on social media, uh, is there a website? Do you want people to go to yeah. like, if people want to say hi, what's the best way to do it? Yeah, you can definitely hit me up on LinkedIn. Uh, okay. Otherwise, you can email me at uh, Glenn with two N's at selfassembled.com. Glenn at selfassembled.com. Hey, man, it was great to meet you and a pleasure to, to chat with you about your business. Thanks for joining. Great to meet you too. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.